0: A couple of weeks ago, I preached a message on Jesus coming and his focus in life and not getting sidetracked and how he had a plan and, he, and the different steps that worked through that plan as he moved from birth uh, through his childhood and his teachings on to his death and resurrection. And in that, I mentioned about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. So this morning I'd like to share a little bit on kingdom living. What does this look like? What is the kingdom? Is it important when we think about the kingdom of God? Is that really something <clears throat> important, or is the focus on me and my personal life and my own things and my relationship to God and everything else is kind of uh, of no consequence? Or is there a kingdom that is is out there? Is it there? Is it here? Is it where is it at? And what's going on with it? And Uh, Kevin said, you know, it was talked about in Sunday school, and he mentioned his message, our kingdom is not of this world. Is it simply a future kingdom that will come someday? Is the kingdom going on right now? And if it is, what should we be doing about it? And how does that all look? Well, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. I shared on the kingdom, uh, I think it was in... 2017 and also in 2014 a couple of different messages so you might remember a few of these things from the book of Matthew now in Matthew it refers to it as the kingdom of heaven and in the other gospels and throughout much of the the new testament you will see it called the kingdom of God now why is one used in Matthew and not so much in the others Going from my notes from a couple of years ago, I didn't re-research this, but the kingdom of God occurs about 68 times in 10 different New Testament books. The kingdom of heaven is referenced 32 times only in the book of Matthew. You won't see it used other places. So why is that? Well, some have thought that it's because they're different. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are two different things. But if you look at parallel passages In the New Testament, you'll see that that really can't be the case because they're often referenced uh, the same way just by different writers. Some have suggested that Matthew, writing primarily to the, the Jewish people at the time, didn't want to use the term kingdom of God because to use the word God was often not done by the Jewish people. They would kind of talk around it a little bit. And so maybe it had more of a thing where he was sticking with that. Some have suggested that because he mentions the kingdom of heaven, it would be compared then to the kingdoms of this earth. There's a kingdom of heaven, kingdoms of this earth, and those are not one and the same as was referenced already this morning. Another idea is the fact that they would have understood and maybe thought about the prophecies of Daniel when Daniel talked about the kingdom of heaven compared to the kingdoms of this earth. But for whatever reason, this morning and we may call it the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, but we're talking about the same thing. In Matthew chapter 3, uh, verse 1, and the first thing I'd like to establish this morning is the fact that the kingdom was preached and it is important and it's referenced and so we must understand how to live in it. I wasn't exactly sure how to lay out the message totally this morning because sometimes I like to get the stuff that we don't want to hear out of the way first and then end on a good note. But I think this morning I want to establish something about the importance of the kingdom, how it was preached, how it was taught, and then talk about some kingdom living. How does that look? And then, kind of toward the end, we're going to spend a little time talking about what the kingdom is not because I, I'm concerned. And even some of our conservative Anabaptist circles are being influenced by teaching that is not correct, and it's, it's, it's infiltrating a lot of churches, including some of our own. So I want to reference that toward the end. So in John chapter three verse one, it says, "In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, "Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is here, it's close." Right after this, you see Jesus being led into the wilderness to be tempted. You see the temptation there. And then in uh, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, it says, Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali. And we'll jump down to verse 17. And from that time, Jesus began to preach to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is near. If you uh, look then if to, to a parallel passage, if you look in Mark chapter 1, which you don't have to turn that, I'll just jump over there to that for you. John chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel or the good news, the good news of the kingdom. So you'll see there that parallel usage of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. But that was what Jesus began to do. It doesn't say that he began to go about um, talking about this or that or just being nice and so forth. He started his preaching with preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and you need to repent if you want to be a part of that kingdom. It was his teachings. Now, we go then into his teachings very early on in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and most of us refer to that as the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll see there uh, in verse 1, it says, as seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." So the very first reference he makes in the Beatitudes is, Blessed are those in poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He starts it off that way. And if you jump down to verse, uh, verses 10 to 12, it says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye, when men shall revile and persecute you, and shall say all evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Or For my sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now it's interesting, in that particular beatitude there, he says, he references the kingdom of heaven, and then he says, great is your reward in heaven. Well, he's talking about those that are persecuted, and those that are likely going to be killed for the faith. He said, your reward is in heaven. Your reward at that point is kind of differentiated between being here in the kingdom of heaven versus being in heaven. Now, I believe at some point those will be one and the same. But there is a sense in which now, if you die, you are still part of the kingdom of heaven, but you'll be in heaven. But I believe there's a time coming when the kingdom of heaven and heaven will all be again reunited in perfection. There's a difference between the kingdom of heaven right now with regard to the church because the church is not pure. Uh, We're still being, it says, the Bible says, washed with the water of the word. There's a sanctifying process going on. Now, it's pure in the sense that those that are in the church are those that have been justified and those that are sanctified, and the Bible says that the, the, the righteousness of the saints uh, the robes, the white robes there, as we look into Revelation there, it's the righteousness of the saints. Yes, there's a purity to it, but the fact is we're still here in these bodies, living in this world, and, and um, it's not the perfect, it, perfectness in the sense that it will be someday in heaven when there is no more temptation, no more possibility of sin, no more anything that is in any way in opposition to God and his holiness. So as you go through the uh, teachings here of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see the kingdom of heaven referenced more times than I'm going to look at it this morning. But if you look at uh, verses nine through thirteen there, it says After this matter, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you look at verse 33 of chapter 6, it says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God. It's interesting there. He uses kingdom of God here. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness... And all these things shall be added unto you. Well, sometimes in this life, we get to looking for this, and we get to looking for that, and we want this, we want that, and all these things. Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added unto you. The things that are necessary for life will be added unto you. Now, not all the things that maybe you'd like to have, not all the things you want But the things that are necessary that God has for you are available if you seek His kingdom first. So the question is, and and I referenced this a little bit in that message, the last message I had. What are our priorities? Where do we spend our time and our energies and our resources? And what are we devoted to in this life? Is it a devotion to self and the things that I want? Or am I seeking the kingdom and what's best for the kingdom? Because if, that's what he says here. Seek ye first the kingdom. And the other things come along. Now, if you turn over to chapter 8, verses 11 through and 12, it says, and I, I want to look at this one because it shows that the kingdom is available to everyone says, so I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Interesting how he says that. There's going to be people coming from the east and from the west. And we're going to sit down with these old patriarchs. Where? In the kingdom of heaven. That tells me, that's why I said earlier, that at some point as we see uh, as the ages as, as the way God has everything worked out, there's gonna be a time when when the kingdom of heaven and heaven in a sense are one and these these we're the, the Christians today will have opportunity to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and these people and actually talk to them and, and I don't know what we'll discuss. Be interesting, I believe. But then he says, the children of the kingdom. And I think what he was referring to there was those who were actually had opportunity, were part of the kingdom of Israel, if you were, the Jewish nation, there will be some of those that will be cast out and won't be a part of the kingdom of heaven. But it is available for those of us from the east, from the west, from anyone, Jew, Gentile. Barbarian, Scythian, bond, or free, as the Bible would say. In chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, it says, uh, These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he sends his disciples out. Actually, he sends these apostles out here to do some, do some work. And the preaching that they were supposed to do was to preach that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. They also gave them another assignment. And sometimes people today get a little loused up on their thinking, believing that they have to do everything that these were told to do in this particular setting But the fact was, the one thing that we know we still are to do, and that is to preach the kingdom of God, and not only to preach it, but to live it as well. In chapter 13, you'll notice here that there are a number of parables, and in verses 10 through, I believe I'll read verses 10 and 11 there, it says, and the disciples came and he said unto, uh, said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. And then if you go through, the look at some of these parables, it says, uh, for instance, over there in verse 24, The kingdom of heaven is likened. In verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like. In verse thirty three, the kingdom of heaven is or the, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, and so forth. So he uses parables to explain and teach about the kingdom. Now, I'd like for you to jump over with me now to the book of John chapter three. John chapter 3, verse 3. Story here of Nicodemus. Jesus talking to him. It says, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you wonder today why people don't understand Christians, why they don't understand how saints operate, how they don't understand the church, they don't understand this whole thing of why people would get together and, and fellowship together and sing together and pray together and hear the preaching together and, and then go out and, and witness together and do all these things. It's because they haven't been born again. It says, "Ye must be born again. He says, except a man be born again, he cannot see. I believe that means several things. One, you cannot understand the kingdom of God. You cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You cannot be a part of it. I was recently talking with another pastor in this area, not from a Mennonite church. And we got to discussing a little bit about uh, this whole COVID thing and how, how you're doing church and so forth. And there, he's pretty much doing things like we are here as far as it's open to everyone. I said, how many of your people are there? And, he kind of gave me a percentage, and he said, I'm concerned. He said, I'm wondering if we'll ever see some back. He said, I wonder if we're seeing now those that really cared about the kingdom and those that didn't. Now, that's not a judgment on someone who not feel comfortable in church yet at this point with the COVID situation, but his concern was... Did this actually divide those who wanted to be a part of the kingdom from those that didn't in his particular congregation? And I don't know that. Time will tell. But could there be some that he was referring to that didn't really see the kingdom of God? I don't know that. Um, I'm simply going by what he shared about his congregation. You can look through the Gospels and see many, many more references To the kingdom of God. And we're not going to obviously look at all of those this morning, but turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We often go to Acts chapter 1 and we reference verse 8. But let's look at some verses preceding that. Start at verse 1 of Acts chapter 1. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles which he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And he tells them to stay in in Jerusalem. And uh, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, of course. But the point I want to make here is he spends these 40 days talking to his uh, disciples and knows that he had an opportunity to teach in those 40 days things pertaining to the kingdom of God and giving them commandments that they should pass on to the church. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but it seems that there is this thread throughout Jesus' life and his teachings that he's concerned about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He teaches, the first thing he says that we have record of as far as going out and actually starting to preach was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then after his resurrection, the 40 days that he has left, he teaches and preaches things concerning the kingdom. If we go to chapter 8, and I don't know, you can turn there, I don't know how much I actually read of it, but you'll see there. I believe chapter 8 is a story where Philip goes to Samaria and it says he teaches them or preaches to them things concerning the kingdom of God. If you go to chapter 28, the very end of the book of Acts. During Paul's two years there, toward the end of his life, I personally think he was freed after this and then re-arrested later, but in these two years that he is imprisoned in Rome, it says in the uh, last two verses of the book of Acts, and Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ, with all confidence no man forbidding him. It's interesting that he teaches the kingdom of God and the things about Jesus Christ. You can't separate the two, but that's what he spent those two years doing. Now, it's interesting when we think about a kingdom. If you look further into the the Gospels, you'll see that it talks about those that cannot be a part of the kingdom because then it lists sins and those that can be a part. But God has been interested in in a kingdom from the very beginning. And when I say this, understand that when we, we don't go and evangelize an entire nation. You can't go and just save a nation. You can't go and just save a whole bunch of people at once. Keep in mind that evangelism and discipleship is still done through individuals. You get people saved one person at a time, if you will. Now, you may go somewhere and preach a message or uh, teach a family or something, and, and a bunch of people come to Christ and repent and become a part of the kingdom. But I think we've kind of gotten ourselves off track a little bit in our thinking when we focus just about my relationship with Jesus Christ and, and nobody else's really matters. If, if that's our thinking, we're not thinking about the kingdom. We're thinking about me. And as long as I get to heaven, that's what matters. So whatever it takes for me to get to heaven, I'm so glad Jesus died for me so I can go to heaven, and that's about where it ends. And when that happens, you begin to see a lot less interest in brotherhood, in church life, in working together with a brotherhood, with accountability. If you go back to the very beginning of time, God created Adam and Eve. Now, I think God could have been just as much God as He is today if He have created Adam and Eve and then that would have been it. Would not even uh, create them so that they would have children. What did he do? He created Adam and Eve and he said, Now be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Well, it's not long after that and things start going bad, as you know, and eventually there's a flood and God saves Noah and his wife, and their three three sons and their wives. And then after the flood, he says, Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. I want more than just you eight. I saved you so that you could continue. And then if you look at Abraham, you say, Well, now there's an individual. He just picked out Abraham. But what did he continually say about Abraham? I will make of thee a great nation. I will make of thee a great nation. It was not enough to just have Abraham. He said, I will make of thee a great nation, and he did. And eventually he brought those people out of Egypt. And at one point, God was ready to destroy them, and he said, I'll raise up from you, Moses, a people. He didn't say, I'll destroy them and forget about this whole thing. How about you and I have a relationship, and let's just leave it at that. Now, Moses said, no, wait, 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 wait. So God has been interested in a people for himself. Now, there's a few aspects about a kingdom that I think it's important to note this morning. First of all, for there to be a kingdom, there needs to be a king. And in a kingdom, the king is the one who makes the decisions. He's the one that controls things. We're not quite used to that in this country as you have been able to observe the last number of months, weeks, years, days, especially. In a kingdom where a king has complete authority, and you go back even in Europe, back before the Magna Carta and some of those things, kings had a lot of power, kings and queens. They didn't like you off with your head. They make a rule, this is the way it is. You can see that even in in the Old Testament in different kingdoms that were set up. The beautiful thing about the kingdom of God is that we have a king who not only has authority, but he loves every one of the people in his kingdom and wants the very, very best for them. Sometimes we don't get that because then we decide what we think is best for us, and so we begin to think, I'll set the rules for the kingdom because I know what I want. It's best for me. This doesn't matter. The guy says, no, I've, I've done it. I've laid it out. I've done everything I could for you. In the kingdom of God, the king himself died in order to make a way for those to be in his kingdom. A king is the focus in a kingdom. It's made up of many people, a kingdom is. And those who obey the king. Now let's talk a little bit about what's kingdom living like then. I've already mentioned that the kingdom is about the king. It's not about me. I've also alluded to this, but I believe that brotherhood is a huge aspect of kingdom living. We talk about kingdom living, what's that actually mean? The brotherhood is a huge aspect of kingdom living. You don't do kingdom living just on your own. And that means giving and taking and working together and hearing from each other as we work through daily life. It is also following the king's commands. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And what are some of those? Well, we believe that, for instance... The Sermon on the Mount is pertinent to today's living in the kingdom. Kingdom living, much of it is based on the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus lived himself. And then you also see these things uh, taught throughout the other the books of the New Testament, of course. One of the things that has hurt us is, and you've got to be very, very careful here. If you are a premillennialist, you've got to be very careful because dispensationalism and premillennialism run pretty close together. But if you're not careful, dispensationalism will take you places you don't want to go. By that I mean this, that the, the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount are not for some dispensation down the road, some future kingdom that's coming, some other time, some other place. And right now, we're here and so we need to help our country. We need to fight for our country. We need to whatever, blah, blah, blah. I don't know how I get them, but I sometimes get these emails from some organization. They call themselves the flag and the cross. I don't know. And It's not a flag with a cross on it either, by the way. It's a flag and it's a cross. And somehow they think those two are just so tied together. It doesn't work that way. It's not about that. And so they get their dispensations a little messed up. We believe, I believe anyway, that we are living in the kingdom of God now and we live like it and we practice it and, we, and that's how we live our lives. Have you ever thought about how much different the world would look if every place Christianity has been taken and shared throughout history From the time of Christ till now, if true kingdom ethics would have been taught and exemplified instead of this idea of God and country type teachings, have you ever stopped and wondered how much different the world might look? It would be different. But too many places... The gospel's been taken, and the gospel of individual salvation has been taken, which is, is right, but the gospel of the kingdom has been left behind somewhere, and the kingdom that you focus on is your earthly kingdom, and someday down the road, there'll be a kingdom of God, a kingdom of heaven, and so you fight here now, and you subdue whatever you need to. That's not kingdom living. Kingdom living is about blessing and loving others. Caring about others more than yourself. You're in, you're in a kingdom, and you care about others more than you do yourself. And I will say this, and, and that it's amazing sometimes how the world looks on when they do see Christian groups that, in a time of disaster or something, how they come together and, just, and, and help and build and do whatever it takes to help each other out. If that can be our witness, think of what that does to the kingdom of God. The other thing that I think about in kingdom living is, and I would have said the focus is on the king, but the fact that when we, that we love our king in such a way that when people meet us and we talk to them, they know that we love somebody out, who who is and, and we share that? I wonder if too many Christians, and we could all be involved in this, but too many Christians show a greater love for earthly kings or presidents or governors or whoever to people around us than we do the true king, and what kind of a What kind of a testimony is that? I think we all need to be very, very careful about that. Yes, we are concerned about the world we're living in, and we need to be. But what is the real kingdom, and what's it about? The Bible says that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Is your treasure in the kingdom, or is it somewhere else? Turn with me to the book of Revelation. As we think about, um, and, and I could spend a lot more time talking about kingdom living, but I would, just, I, I would say it like this. Go to the New Testament and see how we're taught to treat others and to love others and to love God and to obey God and to obey His commandments. Um, and there you've got it. Kingdom living isn't about me, and it's not about picking and choosing what I want to obey that the king has laid out in his word for us. It's, it's, it comes really down to that. In Revelation, I want to show how these kingdoms kind of, you see both kingdoms in a sense, not, not both kingdoms, maybe the, the current aspect of the kingdom for those of us that are alive and, and, and how it ties into the future. So in, John, or in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, it says, I, John who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John says he is in the kingdom. He doesn't say he was on the isle of Patmos looking for some coming kingdom. He was there in the kingdom. And guess what? He didn't have everything the way he wanted it either. He he was in tribulation. He was in trial. He was being persecuted for the word of God. But if we go on in Revelation to chapter 12, and again, it depends on your eschatological views exactly where this is and when it happens and how it happens. But in the vision then, That John is given in the revelation in chapter 12 verse 10 it says this and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down which accused them before our God day and night they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of his testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore, rejoice, ye heavens, you that dwell in them. Notice, rejoice, ye heavens, ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that his, um, he hath but a short time. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not, I'm not prepared this morning to go into a great, Lesson on exactly where this all fits in. But the one thing it is, it says, Now is come salvation. Well, salvation is now, it's a present thing. But there is a sense in which someday salvation will be completed when we are in the presence of God forever. And then it says, along with that, the kingdom. Of our God, with great power. And it's interesting that if you look further into the book of Revelation, we'll not turn to that this morning, but you'll see that you have a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. It actually talks about God dwelling there with His people. Now we focus so much on us dwelling somewhere with God, God talks about. Look, God is redeeming to himself a, a people, and we will be part of his kingdom forever. I don't know exactly how that's all gonna look. But the kingdom starts now. We're we're in it. And we live like it. Now, I said I wanted to touch just a little bit on some dangers to be careful of. And I could have listed a whole bunch of different words and names that are used in some of this teaching. There's sort of a, I don't know, neo-Pentecostal charismatic movements that have happened over the last hundred years. And there's a couple of terms that you may have heard of. Kingdom Now theology. Well, it sounds like I was preaching about the Kingdom Now this morning, right? Well, there's a Kingdom Now theology that you've got to be very careful of. It ties in, it's kind of on... Uh, Heels of dominion theology. Uh, maybe you've heard it's like this. Maybe you've heard the term the seven mountain mandate. I don't know if you've heard about that or not. I don't know. The Revelation talks about seven hills. It doesn't sound very good to me. The seven mountain mandate. And those seven mountains are these. Religion, family, education. Well, those things certainly seem like things that Christians ought to Have some dominion over, right? Government, media, the arts, and business. There's your seven mountains. And according to your kingdom now theologians and your heretical teachers like Bill Johnson out in Bethel, California, or Redding, California, Bethel Church out there, and a long list of those types of teachers, they're teaching that we must As Christians, because the kingdom is now, we must take over all those seven mountains as Christians. So we need to take over the governments of the world as Christians. And we need to take over the media. Boy, that would look different, wouldn't it? We need to take over all of these other things. Businesses, education, all these things, and the arts. And once, here's what it is. It's nothing more than post-millennialism wrapped up in a new package for today. Most Christians, well there were a number of Christians that after World War I thought post-millennialism, let me explain that, if you're not sure. Post-millennialism means that there, that the Christian, that the church will usher in a period of uh, possibly a thousand years, some had it, maybe different ways of looking at it, but of peace and all these things you'll see referenced in some of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And then after the church has ushered all this in and oh, everything's nice and beautiful and all fucked, then Jesus can come back. And so after World War I, what was that war? That was the war to end all wars, right? So some Christians got on board. Hey, we're heading into the millennium period. Whoa, we're going to usher in a time when Jesus can return. Well, it didn't take too many years to figure out that was not the way it was going to work. And the 20th century became, I think, about the bloodiest century there's ever been on Earth as far as bloodshed and war. So most of us thought people had given up on post-millennialism. That's a pie-in-the-sky idea. Well, it's coming back. Here's my warning (laughs) Be very careful about that because there are a lot of Christians who think that we have to be involved in all these different things in the world to make them Christian somehow. Well, the world, Europe was plunged into the darkest period it has ever seen, as far as I know, as, as far as more recent history, when the church and the government became one. Go back and look at history. It's right there. They call it the Dark Ages for a reason. It didn't work. Never has. Never will. The Bible teaches that we are ambassadors for Christ, we are from his kingdom. Ambassadors in other kingdoms wherein we live. And yes, you may be a U.S. citizen. You may be a. Canadian citizen, you may be a citizen from uh, Haiti, whatever country it might be. And so we live in those kingdoms, but we are ambassadors for Christ. We can't get the idea that we can join these kingdoms together somehow and make it work. If that's your idea, you are going to be a very disillusioned, discouraged, and perhaps even depressed person trying to get these kingdoms molded into one rather we invite people that are in the kingdoms wherein we live or we travel to be a part of another kingdom and we exemplify kingdom living to them so they want to be a part of that if you turn with me to john chapter 18 verse 36 jesus makes this very clear Jesus said in John chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. He was a king, but his kingdom was not of this world. Will there be a time when his kingdom is actually on the new earth? I I believe so. I believe that's what Revelation would teach. Because God isn't going to give up anything he created to, this, to Satan. He's going to make it even better, I believe, than it was. But our focus now is let's be involved in living in a kingdom of saints and priests uh, that want to do what the Bible teaches. And let's show that to others and invite them to be a part of that kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for being the greatest King of kings and Lord of lords that there has ever been or ever will be. Thank you for that. Thank you for making it possible for us to be a part of your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to live like it. Help us, Lord, to just show others what kingdom living is like, that we love others more than ourselves, and we love you more than anyone or anything. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.